The Political Economy of Women's Liberation. The woman question is generally ignored in analysis of the class of structure of society. This is so because, on the one hand, classes are generally defined by their relation to the means of production, and on the other hand, women are not supposed to have any unique relation to the means of production. The category seems instead to cut across all classes. One speaks of working class women and middle class women, etc. The status of women is clearly inferior to that of men, but analysis of this condition usually falls into discussing socialisation, psychology, interpersonal relations, or the role of marriage as a social institution. Are these, however, the primary factors? In arguing that the roots of the secondary status of women are in fact economic, it can be shown that women, as a group, do indeed have a defined relation to the means of production and that this is different to that of men. The personal and psychological factors then follow from this special relation to production, and a change in the latter will be necessary, but not sufficient, condition for changing the former. If this special relation of women to production is accepted, the analysis of the situation of women fits naturally into a class of analysis of society. The starting point for discussion of classes in a capitalist society is the distinction between those who own the means of production and those who sell their labour power for a wage. As Ernest Mendel says, The proletarian condition is, in a nutshell, the lack of access to the means of production or means of substance which, in a society of generalised commodity production, forces the proletarian to sell his labour power. In exchange for his labour power, he receives a wage, which then enables him to acquire the means of consumption necessary for satisfying his own needs and those of his family. This is the structural definition of wage earner, the proletarian. From it necessarily flows a certain relationship to his work, to the products of his work, and to his overall situation in society, which can be summarised by the catchword alienation. But there does not follow from this structural definition any necessary conclusions as to the level of his consumption, the extent of his needs, or the degree to which he can satisfy them. We lack a corresponding structural definition of woman. What is needed first is not a complete examination of the symptoms of the secondary status of woman, but instead a statement of the material conditions in capitalist and or other societies which define the group women. In these conditions are built the specific superstructures which we know. An interesting passage from Mandel points the way to such a definition. It is a product created to be exchanged on the market, as opposed to one which has been made for direct consumption. Every commodity must have both a use value and an exchange value. It must have a use value or else nobody would buy it. A commodity without a use value to anyone would consequently be unsaleable, would constitute useless production, would have no exchange value precisely because it had no use value. On the other hand, every product which has use value does not necessarily have exchange value. Exchange value only to the extent that the society itself, in which the commodity is produced, is found on exchange, is a society where exchange is a common practice. In capitalist society, commodity production, the production of exchange values, has reached its greatest development. It is the first society in human history where the major part of production consists of commodities. It is not true, however, that all the production under capitalism is commodity production. Two classes of products still remain simple use value. The first group consists of all things produced by the peasantry for its own consumption. Everything directly consumed on the farms where it is produced. The second group of products in capitalist society which are not commodities but remain simple use value consists of all things produced in the home. 
Despite the fact that considerable human labour goes into this type of household production, it still remains a production of use values and not of commodities. Every time a soup is made or a button sewn on a garment, it constitutes production, but it is not production for the market. The appearance of commodity production and its subsequent regularisation and generalisation have radically transformed the way men labour and how they organise society. What Mandel may not have noticed is that his last paragraph is precisely correct. The appearance of commodity production has indeed transformed the way that men labour. As he points out, most household labour in capitalist society, and in the existing socialist societies for that matter, remains in the pre-market stage. This is the work which is reserved for women, and it is this fact that we can find the basis for a definition of a woman. In sheer quantity, household labour, including childcare, constitutes a huge amount of socially necessary production. Nevertheless, in a society based on commodity production, it is not usually considered real work since it is outside of trade and the marketplace. It is the pre-capitalist in a very real sense. This assignment of household work and the function of a special category, women, means that this group does stand in a different relation to production than the group men. We will tentatively define women, then, and that is the group of people who are responsible for the production of simple use values in those activities associated with the home and the family. Since men carry no responsibility for such production, the difference between the two groups lies here. Not excluded from commodity production. Their participation in wage labour occurs, but, as a group, they have no structural responsibility in this area, and such participation is ordinarily regarded as transient. Men, on the other hand, are responsible for commodity production. They are not, in principle, given any role in household labour. For example, when they do participate in household production, it is regarded as more of a simply exceptional, it is demoralising, emasculating, even harmful to health. A story on the front page of the Vancouver Sun in January 1969 reported that men in Britain were having their health endangered because they had too much housework to do. The material basis for the inferior status of women is to be found in just this definition of women. In a society in which money determines value, women are a group who work outside of the money economy. This work is not worth money, is therefore valueless and is therefore not even real work. And women themselves who do this valueless work can hardly be expected to be worth as much as men, as they work for money. In structural terms, the closest thing to the condition of women is the condition of others who are or were also outside of the commodity production, i.e. serfs and peasants. In her recent paper on women, Juliet Mitchell introduces the subject as follows. In advanced industrial society, women's work is only marginal to the total economy. Yet it is through work that man changes natural conditions and thereby produces society. Until there is a revolution in production, the labour situation will prescribe women's situation within the world of men. The statement of the marginality of women's work is an unanalyzed recognition that the work women do is different from the work that men do. Such work is not marginal, however. It is just not wage labour and is so not counted. She even says later in the same article, Domestic labour, even today, is enormous if quantified in terms of productive labour. She gives some figures to illustrate. In Sweden, 2,340 million hours a year are spent by women in housework compared with 1,290 million hours spent by women in industry. 
Chase Manhattan Bank estimates a woman's overall work week at 99.6 hours. However, Mitchell gives little emphasis to the basic economic factors. In fact, she condemns most Marxists for being overly economist. And moves on hastily to superstructural factors because she notices that in the advent of industrialization has not so far freed women. What she fails to see is that no society has thus far industrialized housework. Frederick Engels points out that the first premise for the emancipation of women is the reintroduction of the entire female sex into public industry, and that this becomes possible not only as a result of modern large-scale industry, which not only permits the participation of women in production in large numbers, but actually calls for it and, moreover, strives to convert the private domestic work also into a public industry. And later in the same passage, here we see already that the emancipation of women and their equality with men are impossible and must remain so as long as women are excluded from socially productive work and restricted to housework, which is private. What Mitchell has not taken into account is that the problem is not simply one of getting women into existing industrial production, but the more complex one of converting private production of housework into public production. For most North Americans, domestic work as public production brings immediate images of brave new world or a vast institution, a cross between a home for orphans and an army barracks, where we would all be forced to live. For this reason, it is probably just as well to outline here, schematically and simplistically, the nature of industrialization. A pre-industrial production unit is one in which production is small scale and redubulative, i.e. there are a great number of little units, each complete and just like all the others. Ordinarily, such production units are in some way kin-based and they are multi-purpose fulfilling religious, recreational, educational and sexual functions along with the economic function. In such a situation, desirable attributes of an individual, those who give prestige, are judged by more than purely economic criteria. For example, among approved character traits are proper behaviour to kin or readiness to fulfil obligations. Such production is originally not for exchange, but if exchange of commodities becomes important enough, then increased efficiency of production becomes necessary. Such efficiency is provided by the transition to the industrialised production, which involves the elimination of the kin-based production unit. A large-scale, non-reduplicative production unit is substituted which only has one function, the economic one, and where prestige or status is attained by economic skills. Production is rationalised, made vastly more efficient and becomes more and more public, part of an integrated social network. An enormous expansion of man's productive potential takes place. Under capitalism, such social productive forces are utilised almost exclusively for private profit. These can be thought of as capitalised forms of production. By the above to housework and child rearing, it is evident that each family, each household, constitutes an individual production unit, a pre-industrial entity, in the same way that peasant farmers or cottage weavers constitute pre-industrial production units. The main features are clear, with reduplicative, kin-based, private nature of the work being the most important. It is interesting to notice that other features, like the multi-purpose functions of the family and the fact that the desirable attributes for women do not centre on economic prowess. The rationalisation of production affected by a transition to large-scale production has not taken place in this area. Industrialisation in itself is a great force for human good. Exploitation and dehumanisation go with capitalism and not necessarily with industrialisation. 
To advocate the conversion of private domestic labour into a public industry under capitalism is quite a different thing from advocating such conversion in a socialist society. In the latter case, the forces of production would operate for human welfare, not for private profit, and the result should be liberation, not dehumanisation. In this case, we can speak of socialised forms of production. These definitions are not meant to be technical, but rather to differentiate between two important aspects of industrialisation. Thus, the fear of the barracks-like resultant of introducing housekeeping into the public economy is most realistic under capitalism. With socialised production and the removal of the profit motive and its attendant alienated labour, there is no reason why, in an industrial society, industrialisation of housework should not result in better production, i.e. better food, more comfortable surroundings, more intelligent and loving childcare, etc., than in the present nuclear family. The argument is often advanced that under neo-capitalism, the work in the home has been much reduced. Even if this is true, it is not structurally relevant to the very rich who can hire someone to do it. There is, for most women, an irreducible minimum of necessary labour involved in caring for home, husband and children. For a married woman without children, this irreducible minimum of work probably takes 15 to 20 hours a week. For a woman with small children, the minimum is probably 70 or 80 hours a week. There is some resistance to regarding child rearing as a job, that labour is involved, i.e. the production of use value can be clearly seen when exchange value is also involved. When the work is done by babysitters, nurses, childcare centres or teachers. An economist has already pointed out the paradox that if a man marries his housekeeper, he reduces the national income, since the money he gives her is no longer counted as wages. Housework to the minimums given is also expensive. For low-income families, more labour is required. In any case, housework remains structurally the same, a matter of private production. One function of the family, the one taught to us in school and the one which is popularly accepted, is the satisfaction of emotional needs, the needs for closeness, community and warm, secure relationships. This society provides few other ways of satisfying such needs. For example, work relationships or friendships are not expected to be nearly as important as a man-woman with children relationship. Even other ties of kinship are increasingly secondary. This function of the family is important in stabilising it so that it can fulfil the second, purely economic, function discussed above. The wage earner, the husband or father, whose earnings support himself also pays for the labour done by the mother, wife, and supports the children. The wages of a man by the labour of two people. The crucial importance of the second function of the family can be seen when the family unit breaks down in divorce. The continuation of the economic function is the major concern where children are involved. The man must continue to pay for the labour of the woman. His wage is very often insufficient to enable him to support a second family. His emotional needs are sacrificed to the necessity to support his ex-wife and children. That is, when there is a conflict, the economic function of the family very often takes precedence over the emotional one. In a society which teaches that the major function of the family is the satisfaction of emotional needs. As an economic unit, the nuclear family is a valuable stabilising force in capitalist society. Since the production which is done in the home is paid for by the husband and father's earnings, his ability to withhold his labour from the market is much reduced. Even his flexibility in changing the job is limited. The woman, denied an active place in the market, has little control over the conditions that govern her life. Her economic dependence is reflected in emotional dependence 
passivity and other typical female personality traits. She is conservative, faithful and supportive of the status quo. Furthermore, the structure of this family is such that it is an ideal consumption unit. But this fact, which is widely noted in women's liberation literature, should not be taken to mean that this is the primary function. If the above analysis is correct, the family should be seen primarily as a production unit for housework and child rearing. Everyone in a capitalist society is a consumer. The structure of the family simply means that it is particularly well suited to encourage consumption. Women in particular are good consumers and this follows naturally from their responsibility for matters in the home. Also, the inferior status of women and their general lack or strong sense of worth and identity make them more exploitable than men and hence better consumers. The history of women in the industrialised sector of the economy has depended simply on the labour needs of that sector. Women function as a massive reserve army of labour. When labour is scarce, early industrialisation and the two world wars etc, then women form an important part of the labour force. When there is less demand for labour, as now under neo-capitalism, women become a surplus labour force, but one for which their husbands and not society are economically responsible. The cult of the home makes its reappearance during times of labour surplus and is used to channel women out of the market economy. This is relatively easy since the pervading ideology ensues that no more, no woman or man, takes women's participation in the labour force very seriously. Women's real work, we are taught, is in the home, and this holds whether they are not married, single, or the heads of the household. At all times, housework is the responsibility of women. When they are working outside the home, they must somehow manage to get both outside job and housework done, or they supervise a substitute for their housework. Women, particularly married women with children, who work outside the home, simply do two jobs. Their participation in the labour force is only allowed if they continue to fulfil their first responsibility in the home. It's evident in countries like Russia and those in Eastern Europe where expanded opportunities for women in the labour force have not brought about a corresponding expansion in their liberty. Equal access to jobs outside the home, while one of the preconditions for women's liberation, will not in itself be sufficient to give equality for women. As long as work in the home remains a matter of private production and is the responsibility of women, they will simply carry a double workload. For women's liberation, which follows from the above analysis, is the conversion of the work now done in the home as private production into work that can be done in the public economy. To be more specific, this means that child rearing should no longer be the sole responsibility of the parents. Society must begin to take responsibility for children. The economic dependence of women and children on the husband or father must end. The other work that goes on in the home must also be changed. Communal eating places and laundries, for example. When such work is moved into the public sector, then the material basis for discrimination against women will be gone. These are the only preconditions. The idea of the inferior status of women is deeply rooted in the society and will take a great deal of effort to eradicate. But once the structures which provide and support that idea are changed, then, and only then, can we hope to make progress. It is possible, for example, that a change to communal eating places would simply mean that women are moved from home into a kitchen or more into a communal one. Be in advance, to be sure, particularly in the source of society where we would not have the inherently exploitive nature that it does now. 
Once women are freed from private production in the home, it will probably be very difficult to maintain for any long period of time a rigid definition of jobs by the sex. This illustrates the interrelation between the two preconditions given above. True equality in job opportunity is probably impossible without freedom from housework, and the industrialisation of housework is unlikely unless women are leaving the home for jobs. The change in production necessarily to get women out of the home might seem to be, in theory, possible under capitalism. One of the sources of women's liberation movements may be the fact that alternative capitalised forms of home production now exist. Daycare is available, even if inadequate and perhaps expensive. Convenience food, home delivery, meals, takeouts, they're widespread. Laundries and cleaners offer bulk rates. However, cost usually prohibits a complete dependence on such facilities and they are not available everywhere, even in North America. These should probably be then regarded as embryonic forms rather than completed structures. However, they clearly stand as alternatives to the present system of getting such work done, particularly in North America, where the growth of service industries is important in maintaining the growth of the economy. The contradictions between these alternatives and the need to keep women in the home will grow. The need to keep women in the home arises from two major aspects of the present system. First, the amount of unpaid labour performed by women is very large and very profitable to those whom the means of production. To pay women for their work, even at minimum wage scales, would imply a massive redistribution of wealth. At present, the support of a family is hidden tax on the wage earner. His wage buys the labour of two people. And second, there is the problem whether the economy can be expanded enough to put all the women to work as part of the normally employed labour force. The war economy has been adequate to draw women particularly into the economy, but not adequate enough to establish a need for all or most of them. If it is argued that the jobs created by the industrialisation of housework will create this need, then one can counter by pointing to 1. The strong economic forces operating for the status quo and against capitalisation discussed above, and two, the fact that the present service of industries, which somewhat count as these forces, have not been able to upkeep with the growth of the labour force as presently constituted. The present trends in the service industries simply create underemployment in the home. They do not create new jobs for women. Exists, women remain a very convenient and elastic part of the Industrial Reserve Army. Their incorporation into the labour force on terms of equality, which would create pressure for capitalisation of housework, is possible only with an economic expansion so far achieved by your neo-capitalism only under conditions of full-scale war mobilisation. In addition, such structural changes imply the complete breakdown of the present nuclear family. The stabilising consuming functions of the family, plus the ability of the cult to keep women in the home and out of the labour market, serve neo-capitalism too well and too easily to be dispended with. And, on a less fundamental level, even if these necessary changes in the nature of the house production were achieved under capitalism, it would have the unpleasant consequence of including all human relations in the cash nexus. The optimization and isolation of people in Western society is already sufficiently advanced to make it doubtful if such complete psychic isolation could be tolerated. It is likely in fact that one of the major negative emotional responses to women's liberation movements may be exactly such a fear. If this is the case, this possible alternatives, cooperatives, the kibbutz, etc. 
can be cited to show that psychic needs for community and warmth can in fact be better satisfied if other structures are substituted for the nuclear family. At best, the change to capitalisation of housework would only give the woman the same limited freedom given most men in a capitalist society. This does not mean, however, that women should wait to redeem such freedoms from discrimination. There is a material basis for women's status, and we are not merely discriminated against, we are exploited. At present, our unpaid labour in the home is necessary if the entire system is to function. Pressure created by women who challenge their role will reduce the effectiveness of this exploitation. In addition, such challenges will impede the functioning of the family and may make the channelling of women out of the labour force less effective. All of these things will hopefully make quicker the transition to a society in which the necessity structural changes in the production can actually be made. That such a transition will require a revolution, I have no doubt. Our task is to make sure that revolutionary changes in the society do in fact end women's oppression.